Good evening and welcome everyone uh, to this uh, special meeting this evening. It's good to see you all. If you're a regular here, if we've seen you before, or if you're here for the very first time, uh, then uh, a very a warm a welcome. Uh, we want to welcome our friend Dr. Peter Williams, who is principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge. He'll uh, tell us more about that in a moment. Uh, but we're uh, very privileged to have Peter uh, with us this evening. And he's going to be speaking on this subject, Can We Trust the Gospels? He's uh, written a book with that title, and he's going to be sharing something of, of that uh, with us tonight. So it's just a very simple format. In a moment, I'm going to hand over to Peter. He'll come and speak. Uh, once he's spoken, there'll be a, a Q&A, question and answer at the end. Uh, and then there'll be uh, some refreshments in a bookstall and so on uh, after after that but more about that later on but we are delighted to have you here peter thank you for coming to spend this evening with us and we look forward to all that you have to bring to us thank you well good evening everyone it's really great to be uh, with you isn't it interesting in the gospels that the, the pharisees were criticized for sitting on the front row and since then no one's wanted to occupy it um it, it's great to be here i, I think after um the years of 2020 and 2021 where there's so much lockdown, I, I just feel I want to cherish every single meeting that, where it's possible to get out and see people face to face. And this is a special moment that God uh, has given us together. Uh, looking at the subject of can we trust the gospel? So um, just to introduce myself a little bit, I'm 52, married to Catherine, got two kids, and I've been doing Bible research for quite a while, and I lead a centre called Tyndale House in Cambridge, tyndalehouse.com, which you can look up, or you can come over and see us. And we have Britain's largest library of the Bible and 50 or so geeks there every day um, uh, geeking out on Bible research. So um, do come and experience that. We have coffee at 11 o'clock, uh, and so you're uh, really welcome. Just to tell you about uh, how to stay in touch, this is a free magazine. Uh, which doesn't come out that often, like uh, your next issue will be in August, but you can sign up, tinnerhouse.com, and just go magazine or subscribe or something like that, and you can get this. We will post it to you. We'll post 10 copies to your house if you like, um, and, uh, or, or to your church, and you can use that. Also, there are online articles, and it's a bit like a National Geographic uh, written about the Bible uh, by scholars, peer-reviewed by uh, scholars, but also run through the grid of people who know how to communicate, which not every scholar does. So, um, <laughs> looking at the subject, can we trust the Gospels? Um, bit of commercial, that's uh, the magazine I'm trying to encourage you to subscribe to, but let's dive straight in with the subject. Why are the Gospels important? Because they tell you about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is supremely important. About two billion people on the planet would uh, identify themselves as followers of uh, Jesus Christ in some way. And what is absolutely remarkable is that there are four biographies of Jesus Christ, and the most famous person alive at the time of Jesus' ministry was obviously the Roman Emperor. And the Roman Emperor also has four biographies of him. So how does someone who's brought up in Nazareth, which is a relatively obscure place in the Eastern Roman Empire have as many biographies of him as the person in charge of the entire Roman Empire. That is an astounding thing. And we can look here at the uh, writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John for the four Gospels, 
And for the accounts of the emperor, Valeus Paterculus, that's a good name for your cat, Tacitus, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio. How many words did they write? Well, I've given you uh, the words there, and um, there's a bit of a cheat here because some of the ones of the Roman emperor are written in Latin, and the ones of uh, Jesus are written in Greek. But more or less one word in Latin will count as one word in Greek. So this will roughly give you a sense of length. What you see is the four accounts of Jesus' life are actually longer than three of the four accounts of the life of the emperor. That's a pretty interesting thing or, or as a whole. And then there's one of them that's an outlier, that's a lot longer. That's Tacitus's annals. But in fact, that annals are telling you what happened in the life and times of the emperor. They're not all a biography of the emperor. So taking this, you can see actually there's more about Jesus than there is about the Roman emperor. Now, there are some differences here. Because, of course, the Roman emperor gets his name on coins and he gets his name on various um, inscriptions around the place saying he did this, he did that. But it's already astounding that we have this much about someone who comes from an obscure village in Galilee. That's just astounding. Now, let's look at when our earliest manuscripts come from, the earliest copies. With the Gospels, we have complete copies of all four Gospels in London from the 4th century. But if we go to places like Manchester and Oxford for Matthew and John's Gospel, you can actually probably get bits back in the 2nd century. Not of the whole thing, but um, uh, parts, fragments. And it's a bit like when you're an auditor. I think we've got an, at least one accountant here. Uh, and you're going to check the finances of, of a firm. You don't need to check all of their receipts. You just need to sample them, and you'll be able to find out whether uh, anything suspicious is going on. It's exactly the same with the text of the New Testament. We've got complete manuscript from the 4th century, but you've got earlier bits from the 3rd and 2nd centuries, and you're able to check and see that they agree with the later ones. So that, that shows you the reliability of it. Contrast that with the Roman emperor. The accounts of him come from the 9th century. Uh, that's the earliest physical copy you can find. Now, then we go to the final bit, was when were these things written? Well, I'm not going to give you my dates for the Gospels. In italics, I've put the dates of the world's leading Bible sceptic, Bart Ehrman, from uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And using... Professor Ehrman's own dates, you can see that the Gospels are not that far from the time of Jesus. Jesus, is, uh, the crucifixion is normally dated to around the year 30 or the year 33. With Tiberius, he died in the year 37. Three of the four accounts come from a lot later. The gap between them and the emperor is bigger than you even have for the Gospels using the world's leading Bible sceptic states. But one of the accounts, Valeus Paterculus, is written during Tiberius' own times. You think, wow, that must be super reliable. Actually, it's the least reliable. It completely disagrees with the other three. The other three tell you that Tiberius was completely mad and cruel, killed a lot of his enemies and a lot of his friends, spent a lot of the time in the island Capri, uh, neglecting the empire and so on, Valeus Paterculus 
only ever tells you nice things about the Roman emperor. Why? Because he was in the pay of the Roman emperor. And so it's a very interesting uh, thing there. One thing we can say about the four Gospels, the people who wrote those didn't stand to gain financially from writing them in any way. There's no plausibility that they stood financially to gain. So what we can see is already it's astounding that we have this much about Jesus Christ. And people often say, where's the evidence for Jesus? And I point them to Christian sources. They say, well, that's not good enough. Show me some non-Christian sources. Look, most things written about football are by football enthusiasts. Most things written about golf are by golf enthusiasts. Most things written about Jesus are by Jesus enthusiasts, okay? Uh, You've just got to accept that that's the way it is. Don't dismiss the evidence just because of who's writing it. Actually go into it and look into these things. Now, let's go to another famous figure, Alexander the Great. You've all heard of Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great died in the year 323 BC. And then we look at, we've got five biographies of him. But look at the gap between Alexander the Great and the earliest biography. At least 250 years. Wow. What we got with the Gospels is so, so, so much better than what we have with Alexander the Great. Or let's take another Roman emperor. When Jesus is born, uh, the person in charge was the Roman Emperor Augustus. Now people say, aha, we've got a really good biography of him because it's actually written on stone in a wall in Turkey from within two years of when he died. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Um, and uh, his command was, when he died, that they had to put up his biography that he'd written himself uh, in lots of different places, okay? And this is one of them, and this one survived. Great. But look what it actually says. This is how it begins. It says, below is a copy of the Acts of the deified Augustus, okay, so he's supposed to have become a god after he died, by which um, uh, he, he placed the whole world under the sovereignty of the Roman people, and of uh, the amounts that he expended. It's all about the money he gave out. Now, you read his biography, autobiography, and it's like, I gave money to this people, gave money to that people, I gave money to that. It never sounds like he took any money from anyone. Like, the whole point of being Roman emperor is to squeeze juice out of people uh, and and to to get stuff. Um, But you would read this and think, Wow, he's so generous. So in fact, it's a, it may be close to the time, but it's incredibly biased. Um, and uh, it's less than half the length of Mark's Gospel, by the way, which is the shortest of the four Gospels. Now, I do want to give you one non-Christian source, just to, for orientation. Maybe you're a non-Christian here tonight, and you say, well, why should I trust the Christian sources? There are quite a few non-Christian sources which tell you about early Christianity. Here is one, uh, which is by... The um, Roman writer Tacitus, who wrote about the great fire in Rome. In the year 64, there was a big fire in Rome, and Nero blamed the Christians for starting it. And Tacitus writes that, in fact, um, Christians were named after Christus, that's just Latin for Christ. The founder of the name had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius, so that's between the year 14 and the year 37, right? Uh, 
uh, by the sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate was in charge of Judea from about the year 26 to the year 36. So already he is telling you, without looking at the New Testament, when Christ was put to death. Sometime between the year 26 and the year 36. And the pernicious superstition, he doesn't like Christianity at all, was checked for a moment, not only to break out uh, once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital, Rome itself, uh, where all things horrible and shameful in the world collect and become fashionable. Well, he didn't particularly like his uh, own uh, city of Rome. But what he confirmed is also where the disease of Christianity began. It all began in Judea. So he confirms who started it, where it happened, when it happened. Those sort of things are known. Now, what we can do when we get the four Gospels is we can actually test them. We can road test them for what knowledge do they have. Okay, they're they're quite close to the time. What knowledge do they have of the things associated with Jesus? And one of the tests you can do is simply geography. Let's give them a geography test. Let's see whether they know the names of the places uh, that there are. Now, I would fail miserably a geography test from round here. Towns and villages, sorry, I'm not very good on directions anyway. I didn't spend much time uh, looking at a map before I came. Uh, I just had this voice in the car telling me where to turn next. Um, I would do a hopeless job. And yet, we've got the internet, we can find out all sorts of things nowadays. Back then... How would you get information if you wanted to make up a story about a place? If it was somewhere that you lived, you could write about it. But if it's someone you didn't live, how would you know? You couldn't go to a bookshop in Rome and read up about names of villages and towns in Judea and Galilee. There was just no bookshop that would sell that sort of stuff. So what you do is you look at this and you see all four Gospels mention lots of towns and villages. But they don't all mention the same ones. So we know they haven't all copied off each other, have they? They've all got independent knowledge. And it's not just that they know the names of the towns. They also know the shapes of the land. So Jerusalem is 750 metres above sea level. And so they keep on, whenever they, they don't just go to Jerusalem. It says they go up to Jerusalem. When they leave Jerusalem, they go down from Jerusalem. Um, Jesus' famous story of the Good Samaritan um, says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho is the lowest city on the planet, and the road goes down. So he knows where there's a road. Those are two next-door cities. What I mean by this is there isn't a city between them, okay? And it knows which way the land goes, so it knows in detail about the road. It also knows that it's a road on which people often are robbed, um, and it even has a priest going down that road, and we know that priests often have to work in Jerusalem in the temple, and we have archaeological evidence that there were lots of priests living in Jericho. All of those things are exact pieces of information, and the Gospels are getting that time and time again uh, right. Or uh, when it talks about going from Nazareth uh, or Cana down to Capernaum, again, it's using the right verbs. It's got the shape of the land. The Holy Land is a very hilly land. So when they're getting the right verbs... That's quite impressive. Again, it's easy if you live in the land and you're just truthfully reporting. But if you were making up a story and you didn't live in the land, how would you do that? You'd have to interrogate someone and take really, really, really careful notes to make sure you got that stuff right all the time. And if you're going to admit that someone could do that, then they can get the story right. But let's look at a few 
uh, more uh, things. Here, you've got the bit from John chapter 4, where the man is asking uh, Jesus to come down to heal uh, his servant. Uh, again, Jesus is high up, it gets the shape of the land rights. Or here's a place where Jesus is reported as criticising a number of towns. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, okay, Two different, one, one village, one town, uh, for if the mighty works that have been done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, those are pagan cities, they would have repented long ago um, in sackcloth and ashes, uh, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, uh, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now look at those three towns he, he criticises. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and look at them on a map. That's the top of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is only four to five miles across at its maximum. Those three places are really close. So it only makes sense for someone to be saying those things if they actually come from around that area. Now, what we're told in Matthew's Gospel and elsewhere is Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is at the top of the Sea of Galilee. We're going to come back to that. So when we see that those sort of things reported in the Gospels, time and time again, we're getting shown something that comes from a very specific place. We can, if you like, geolocate what's being said. The speaker needs to be in this place, not just somewhere random. Okay? Um, and you can contrast that with fake Gospels. Now, every now and then, you get, particularly around Easter time, some magazine will come out with, ooh, someone's discovered another Gospel. What about this? Shouldn't we stick that into our Bible? Uh, and so on. Um, and uh, they're naturally usually not coming out with anything that's new. Uh, there are counterfeit banknotes because there are real banknotes, okay? Um, and what we've got with Gospels is later on, like 100 years after Christianity begins, 200 years, people come up with fake Gospels because it seems like a bandwagon to get onto. Notice the fake Gospels never use the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why not? They've already been taken. Okay, those domain names have been taken. You've got to get another one. So, in fact, they are testimony and support of the truth of the other things. But what I want you to see is that whereas the four Gospels mentioned 12 to 14 towns each, a total of 23, the best um, other Gospel for mentioning places is the Gospel of Philip, which has two towns, Jerusalem, the capital, and Nazareth, which it thinks is Jesus' middle name. Okay, so in terms of actual geographical knowledge, that's not very impressive, and the other ones do worse. What about where the gospel writers could get their information from? Could they get them from any books? I've gone through all the possible books that we know about. Any books from around the time don't have enough. They don't mention all the places mentioned in the gospels. Books from later, well, they're too late to be used. It just doesn't work. Okay, let's look at another test. This is a test of what people are called, okay? People have different names. You go to different countries, and you find that names change over time. In fact, if you look at the UK, you'll find that names 100 years ago were different from names now. So um, more people will be called Kylie now than would be called that 100 years ago, uh, and so on. What you find, or names come back sometimes, uh, some names feel old and then people start using them again and, and, and so on. You know what it's like. Now, we can actually do samples of names because it's not just that you've got the names in the Gospels. You've got other names like 
names that come up on bone boxes. When someone dies and they lay out their body for a year, the body decomposes, they then put the bones into a box and they might write the person's name on the box to say whose bones they are. Or you might get a historian like Josephus and you can look up what does he call people or what, what names are they used in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what you find is this. Inside the Gospels, for Jewish men from the Holy Land, that the most common name is Simon. That's also the most common name outside the Gospels. So they've got the right top name. The second most popular name is Joseph. Oh, that's also the second most popular name outside uh, the Gospels. That's really uh, interesting. Uh, And you can see a little bit more because when you start gathering more information together, you start finding the statistics correlate. You take the top nine men's names outside the Gospels and inside the Gospels, they're within 1% of each other. The top woman's name outside the Gospels is Mary. The top woman's name inside the Gospels is Mary. It's a really interesting thing. And it's not just that people could say, oh, I'm going to make up a story and put Jewish names in. Because Jewish names differ from country to country. Here are a load of Jewish names from Egypt. This is the ranking on the left of Jewish names in Egypt. They're different names. Do you know anyone called Ptolemaeus? No. Because the Gospels weren't written about Jewish men in Egypt. If they had been, that would have been quite popular because Ptolemy was ruler of Egypt at one stage. That became a popular name. Dosithius, Pappus, again, those names are nowhere today, whereas just about every name that you get in the Gospels is used by someone today. You see, there's a difference. Jews had different names in Rome. There are lots of Jews in Rome. Go to the catacombs, look at Jewish names, and you'll find a lot more Latin in the names there. So different names for Jews in different countries. You can't just say, I'm going to make up a story, put some Jewish names in, because you have to have names from that particular country. Now, have you ever read one of those magazines about what's the most popular baby name at the time? Yeah, you read those? Often when you read them, they're quite surprising. Because you think, I didn't know that was such a popular name. Because if you use your gut impression of what a popular name is, it will be wrong. So most of us might know, I don't know how many thousand people we know. Not that many. many. It's a small sample. And that means that we can come across a name that we think is really, really rare, and then the next week we come across another person with the same name. Or I thought, uh, you know, uh, I was choosing rare names for my kids, and then turned out they weren't. Uh, Sometimes your impressions can be wrong on those sort of things. But what we find is the Gospels have got the right names in the right proportions. But there's a further thing. If you've got lots of people called Simon, then you call out Simon and loads of men turn their heads. That's no use. So you're going to have to distinguish one Simon from another. So you do like the equivalent of surnames. They didn't have surnames back then. But let's say Jesus has 12 disciples. Two of them are called Simon. One's called Simon Peter. So he's got an extra bit added. Sometimes Simon Cephas, okay? The other one is called Simon the Zealot, or the Canaanite. Canaanite is another way of saying zealot. I know it doesn't sound like it, but it is, okay? It's not the same as Canaanite from the land of Canaan. It's a different word, okay? It's all in the spelling. Um, So Simon the Canaanite, the zealot, that's one. Simon Peter is the other. Who carries Jesus' cross? Simon of Cyrene. 
Jesus has a meal with someone called Simon the leper, who doesn't seem to be a leper at the time because lots of people are sitting around having a meal with him. Maybe Jesus has healed him, but he's called that to distinguish him from all the other Simons. Um, In the book of Acts, Simon Peter stays with Simon the tanner, the leather worker, okay, to distinguish him from all the other Simons. Joseph of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. You get with all the most popular names, you get a disambiguator, something telling you it's this one, not that one. And it's not happening with the other names. That's an amazing thing. So have a look at this. This is Matthew's list of Jesus' disciples. Okay, in Matthew's Gospel, we've got a list of Jesus' 12 disciples. And this is what it says. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Simon, rank number one. Therefore disambiguated, called Peter. And Andrew, which is a really low-ranking name, so there's no extra bit with it. Um, It's you know, lower than 99 uh, on that, his brother. James, pretty high ranking, 11th. So we're going to give the father's name, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now, John's high ranking, but he's explained as the brother. So you, you get who, therefore, John's father was. Philip, low ranking, 61st equal. Therefore, I don't need to add anything to the name, okay? Bartholomew, 50th equal, uh, low ranking, add nothing to the name. Thomas, low ranking, so add nothing to the name. Matthew, high ranking, number nine, so I'm going to add something to the name, give you his job, the tax collector. James, high ranking, so I'm going to give you his dad's name, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, low ranking, so I don't need to add anything. Simon, high ranking, the Cananean. And Judas, high ranking, Iscariot. You see, there's a correlation between whether they've added something to the name... And statistics, we've only known about the popularity of the name for the last 20 years. And that's astounding because that is telling you that list comes from that land. Mary was a popular name, but if you read the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 16, you'll see it simply says Mary and doesn't tell you anything about her because Mary was not a common name in Rome. You see, you don't need to distinguish her from other Marys. So it all depends where you are. This is exactly the right way to speak for Jesus' land. Do any of you ever struggle to remember names? Yeah. Do you know there's a technical name for it? It's called nominal aphasia. Okay, you just say I'm suffering from nominal aphasia at the moment. Acute nominal aphasia, if you like. Um, I can't remember your name. Um, But often you look around the room and you say, I can remember the last conversation I had with that person, I can remember where they come from, what their job is, all sorts of things about them, uh, who they're related to, I just can't remember their name. Because names are really hard. They're actually a bit random. Like, how do you stick a name onto someone? It's really hard to remember that. That's why we might watch a film and remember the plot line of the film but forget the names of the characters, okay, all the time. Names are the hardest thing to remember. So think about it. If the Gospels have got correctly the thing that's the hardest bit to remember isn't there every reason to think they can get everything else right who was with whom that's easy stories are easy to remember names are hard to remember okay but they're getting the names right you go on holiday you meet some people they're interesting you come back and tell your friends about them you might not even bother telling your friends the names of the interesting people you met because you know they're not going to remember them so you simply tell them the story bit So if we've got the right names on people, what's this telling us is that we haven't got the gospel stories as they've been passed on through many different stages. 
If there had been many different stages, you wouldn't get this reliability of name data. Now, I want to show you something a little bit more. Here is John the Baptist. Uh, this is uh, from Matthew chapter 14. John was a popular name at the time. And I want you to notice the way the writer of the narrative speaks differently from the characters in the narrative. Okay? So this is where it says, Herod says to his servants, referring to Jesus, he says, this is John the Baptist. He can't just say this is John, because his servants would have said, well, you've got quite a few Johns working on palace staff at the moment. What do you mean this is John? So he says, this is John the Baptist, right? Then the narrator says that he went and he arrested John. Because he's told us which John we're talking about. We don't need to disambiguate. Then it says, John said, we know who that is. But then Herodias' daughter can't just say, give me the head of John. She might have got the head of the wrong John. So she says, give me the head of John the Baptist. And the next verse, it says, he sent and beheaded John. So you see what the writer's doing. It's telling you exactly the way people had to speak. That's really important. Reporting exactly people's words. It, it would be so easy to write this story and it makes sense to us. Give me John's head. We would have known. But it's actually reporting what Herodias' daughter said. But it also does this with Jesus. Jesus was the sixth most common name at the time. Very popular name. So if you had just simply said, Jesus is coming down the street, everyone would have said, which Jesus are you talking about? Now, the writers of the Gospels don't need to tell you which Jesus you're reading about because it's all about him. And if you have got to Matthew chapter 21 and don't know what Jesus you're reading about, you need to start again with a stronger coffee. Um, but what I want you to notice is the way Jesus was a really, really uh, common name. And uh, so the narrator can simply say they did just as Jesus told them, Matthew 21 verse 6. But then the crowds can't just say, oh, this is Jesus. They have to say something more. They say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. But the next verse, it says, and Jesus went into the temple. So you can see it's distinguishing in the Gospels the way the actual people on the ground talk about Jesus from the way the Gospel writers talk to us about Jesus. You see? And that's really historically accurate. And they do this again and again. Here is the point in Matthew 26 when uh, the Apostle Peter is denying Jesus. And what it says is, narrator says, Jesus said to him, okay? But then the servant girl comes up and says, ooh, this man, Peter, you were with Jesus the Galilean. She has to explain which Jesus, because there are, could be quite a few Jesus working in Caiaphas' um, you know, courtyard. Um, another girl, slightly more clued up, says, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. Then, it says, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. You see the way the people, the characters are speaking differently from the narrator, okay? Let's look at that again. Uh, Pilate says to the crowds, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who's called Christ? He has to explain what Jesus is talking about. What shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? Over the cross, it'll say, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Um, even the angel will say to the women... I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. In other words, explaining which Jesus we're talking about. Or look at this in Mark's Gospel. Again, the demons call out, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? I absolutely love this one in Mark 10:47 Because this is a case where it isn't in speech marks, 
It's actually the narrator speaking, but it's the narrator reporting what the blind man heard. Okay? Blind man heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, and he began to call out, Son of David, Jesus. Not everyone, not every Jesus is descended from David. So you've got two of them in this verse. One is it's telling you exactly what the guy was hearing. He heard Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. It's telling you what people were saying to him. Then it tells you what he said. Jesus, and I'm telling you which Jesus I'm talking about, Jesus, son of David, right? Um, And then uh, the servant girl uh, to Peter, you were the Nazarene Jesus, or the angel to the women, you see Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Again, it's in Luke. um, Demons, what do we have to do with you? Jesus, uh, Jesus, son of the most high God. Jesus, teacher, have mercy on us. And again, that same thing with the blind man. But you might say there's one case where it doesn't give you anything extra. And that's when the thief on the cross turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me. Well, of course, people on crosses don't waste words. And this is not a crowd setting. This is a one-to-one setting. So it's just simply, Jesus, uh, remember me. But then Jesus is reported to encounter two people um, on the road to Emmaus, uh, and uh, they've been talking about things, and he says, well, you know, uh, what's been going on? He said, well, what, what's been going on? And they say, well, haven't you heard the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth? They can't just say the things concerning Jesus. So every time they're getting this right, and then here we have finally John's Gospel. Uh, and exactly the same pattern every time, uh, here's chapter 1, um, uh, chapter 6. Chapter 9 is an interesting one. Because it's giving you a man who's born blind, who's healed, who at this point in the chapter is only half able to identify Jesus. Uh, A man called Jesus uh, healed me, he made clay, but actually that's not enough. And it's telling you, at that point it's not enough. But all the other cases, um, they come to arrest him in the garden twice. Uh, Whom are you seeking? They reply, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? So, on the test of names, the Gospels are getting it exactly right. Now... Um, another test tax taxation now this is a really interesting thing because in Matthew, Mark and in Luke you have lots of tax collectors having a meal with Jesus and they're up in the north at the top of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum now why is that significant? because these are toll collectors so the thing is you're carrying your bundle of grain over a border within the Roman Empire from one jurisdiction to another Toll collectors hit you and say they want their percentage, okay? So the tax collectors are exactly at the right place because that town, Capernaum, Jesus' hometown, is a border town between, uh, as you go around the top of the Sea of Galilee, or if you try and go across it. So that's exactly the right place to have lots and lots of tax collectors. Then in Luke's Gospel, and only in Luke's Gospel, you've got um, the story of Zacchaeus, little Zacchaeus, who climbed up the sycamore tree. Where was he at the time? He was in Jericho, right down south, opposite Jerusalem. Um, But again, it's a border town. He's a chief tax collector. You have a chief tax collector when there are lots of other tax collectors around. Again, if you're coming east to west, you have to go past Jericho to get up to Jerusalem, and that's where they hit you with the toll. So again, it's really local knowledge. It's exactly right. They even get the plants right. Now, if you are making up stories, it's really hard to get everything right. I mean, people criticise Dan Brown for all sorts of things. One of them is, just in his Da Vinci Code, getting the geography of Paris wrong, you know, and and say, like, no, if you're making up stories, it's so difficult to get all those things right. 
But the Gospels are getting this right. If Jericho is the lowest city on the planet, it also has a different climate. And it describes how little Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, climbs up a sycamore tree. Okay, this is in Luke's Gospel, only in Luke's Gospel. You ask yourself the question, are there sycamore trees in Jericho? And the answer is yes, and here are some people standing in one. Okay, it's exactly the right plant. Now, this is the distribution of this type of sycamore, right? Across lots of parts of Africa, bits of Egypt, small bits of uh, Israel, Palestine, not Turkey, not Greece, not Italy. Someone in those countries wouldn't even have heard of this tree, okay? So it's the right tree for the right place. They're getting this right. When they know the Mount of Olives is there, they get it right. They know there's a garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. That's exactly right, because um, Gethsemane is local language. Local language for press of oil. Why would it be called press of oil? Oh, because it's the Mount of Olives. What do olives produce? Oil. All those details come together. Palm Sunday, coming down the hill to Jerusalem, palm branches, the right plants, the right shape of land. You see, the Gospels are doing this again and again. Just open up your Bibles and you will find on page after page really specific, clever familiarity. And that's an impressive thing. And as a bottom line, tells you you've got to take the Gospels seriously. Does that prove the miracles? No, it doesn't. But it means you've got to take this seriously. These are close-up reporters. Now, there's another thing to the Gospels, and that is subtle coincidences. You sometimes find that what one Gospel writer tells you fits subtly with what another Gospel writer tells you. Let me give you this example. In Matthew's Gospel and, and some of the other Gospels, it reports that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before he dies, he prays to his Father, to God, and says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Okay? He's referring to what he's about to undergo, the suffering on the cross, as a cup. That's a very unusual way of speaking, isn't it? Or we can say it comes from Matthew. Uh, Jeremiah 25 or something like that, but it's an unusual way of speaking. Now, John's Gospel doesn't tell you about that prayer, okay? But in John's Gospel, people come along to arrest Jesus, and Peter draws out his sword and says, aha, I've got a great plan, I'm going to fight these guys. Um, and Jesus says to him, um, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, notice that's only in John, and the prayer is not in John. Okay, But it exactly fits if Jesus has been thinking about cup. right? That's the sort of subtle agreement you get between two different narratives when they're true. When you split up witnesses and there are just little bits that one person says that really fits with what another person said. And I want to show you this with the feeding of the 5,000. Okay? So the feeding of the 5,000, other than the resurrection of Jesus, is the only miracle reported in all four Gospels. Okay? And what we see first is this little detail in Mark and in John is about the grass. Okay, So Mark uh, tells you uh, there was green grass and John tells you there was much grass. Is that true or is it a little detail put in to make it seem true? Okay, Let's leave that question hanging. Mark tells you that the reason Jesus wanted to go to a deserted place is because lots and lots of people were coming and going. Okay, lots of people travelling, 
Mark doesn't tell you why lots of people are travelling, he just tells you that people are, lots of people are travelling. But over in another gospel, in John's gospel, it tells you it was Passover time. Aha! Passover time was the biggest festival of the Jewish year. Lots of people would travel to Jerusalem. It makes a lot of sense that um, lots of people would be travelling at that time. So what you've got is a subtle agreement between Mark and John. They confirm each other. They fit together into an overall picture. Then it tells you in John's Gospel that Jesus turns to one of his disciples called Philip and asks him where they should get bread from to feed all these people. Then it tells you that Philip and Andrew both involved in the reply. Why those two disciples? Well, let's plug in some information from Luke's Gospel and we find out the feeding took place near Bethsaida. Go back to the beginning of John's Gospel, you find out that Philip and Andrew are from Bethsaida. Ah, now I get it. Jesus has turned to a man with local knowledge and asked him where to get bread from. And he and another guy with local knowledge reply. But if I just read through John's Gospel on its own, I don't see any of that. If I plug in the information from Luke, suddenly I get a bigger picture. I get to see this really fits. Even the little detail in John's Gospel that the boy uh, who brought along the bread had barley loaves exactly fits with when you've got Passover time because that's when you've just had the barley harvest. But okay, what about the grass? Would the grass have been green? Would there have been a lot of grass? Why don't we get a rain chart from a nearby town and plug in when Passover would be? Passover happens around April. So you can see that you've had five of the greatest months of precipitation, of rainfall, uh, leading up to this. So would the grass have been green? The answer is you bet. So all of these details fit together. Does that prove the miracle? No, of course not. But a lot of people like to explain away miracles like this. They say that one person told another person told another person told another person, and it all got exaggerated. That's how you got the miracle stories. I'm sorry, that won't work. Because what you need for that is you need selective corruption of information. You need something that's going to corrupt the big main bit of the story, the miracle, while leaving all of the peripheral, less important details untouched. You can't do that. When people get stories wrong, it's the little stuff that often is the first to go and the big stuff that's the last to go. So you don't have a mechanism for getting this sort of story through one person exaggerating to another person to another person. You see? Can't prove the miracle, but I can show this. That the methods people use to explain the miracles away won't do. Now, what can we say together? When we look at the Gospels and we run lots and lots of tests, they all fit. They really fit. But there's even more. And this is the amazing thing about the Gospels. They are about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the most remarkable figure you couldn't make up. There was a great poet in England a long time ago, John Milton. And he, he, he made up these two poems, one called Paradise Lost and one Paradise Restored. And, and they're really trying to tell the story of the Bible in his own poetic way. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' life fits within the story of the Bible? If you go to a synagogue near here and you ask the Jews there, what are your holy books? What's your first holy book? They're going to say, well, it's Genesis. Okay. 
How does the story of Genesis begin? Well, one of the first scenes you're going to get in uh, the book of Genesis, down at the synagogue, just as here, is a story of two humans at a tree taking what they shouldn't. And as a result, death coming into the world. Okay? And that's like the beginning of a story. Okay? If that's the beginning of a story, don't you sort of need the story to end somewhere? How, how are you going to end that story? What you get in the Gospels is the climactic scene in the Gospels is this figure innocently dying on a cross. And a cross is a tree. Don't think they smoothed down the wood to be like this pulpit. The cross is a tree. Okay? That's the central scene. Someone dying on a tree bringing life. Now, how can you have such a good storyline when we know that there was no overarching human to make that happen? Because there was the bits of Genesis that we have in our Bibles and they have in the synagogues were not made up by Christians. Go to the synagogue and ask the Jews, have Christians changed your Bibles? They say, no way. That's our Bible. Right? And yet together they make an amazing storyline that focuses round Jesus. And how, it's not just that, but he came back to life again and is reported to have been seen by people morning and evening, indoors, outdoors, by prior appointment, without prior appointment, groups of men, groups of women, standing, sitting, walking, talking, all in the town, in the countryside, Judea, Galilee, all sorts of different ways. And there's an empty tomb. And he's the same person who came up with a whole load of what nowadays would be called memes. Judge not that you be not judged. Do unto others what you'd have them do to you. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And again and again, the most amazing and memorable sayings and amazing and memorable stories, the parable of a good Samaritan, out of which we get the name of a, a charity here in the UK, the Samaritans, the prodigal son, all these sorts of things coming together, and you have a, a meaning to his death. Shortly before his death, the Gospels report that Jesus broke bread and he said to his disciples, take, eat. Those words take you right back to the beginning of the Bible where it talks about how the humans, the woman took an act and gave to her husband. They took an act and as a result they came cursed. Jesus said, take and eat, this is the cup of blessing. So everything converges with Jesus. Now people have problems with miracles sometimes. They say miracles are like upsetting the natural laws of the universe. I don't want to allow a miraculous Jesus in because it's like unscientific. What I want to say to you, Christians don't believe in random miracles that spoil patterns. Christians believe in miracles that make patterns. And all the miracles make a pattern focusing on Jesus and pointing to him as the way that we can be reconciled to God because he laid down his life for us to take our sins away so that we can have a restored relationship with him. So in other words, when we're looking at the question of gospel reliability, it's not just a question of historical sources. It's a matter of explaining everything. Jesus makes more sense of life than anything or anyone you will ever come across. 
he has more written about him and more reliable stuff than you would get about the Roman emperor. He also has greater things to say about how you should live your life. He has greater things to offer. And one of the most astounding things is this, the offer of forgiveness. Because we've all done wrong things and we have no way of getting rid of those wrong things. Some of us have done things that have severely impacted other people's lives in bad ways. There's only one person who can forgive us, and that's God, on the basis of the sacrifice of his own son dying to take the punishment for us. So I'd urge you, uh, if you've not come to know Jesus and to know his forgiveness, uh, to uh, speak to someone tonight about how you can come to know him. And I'd commend the four Gospels to you if you've not read them before. They're only nine hours to read all of them, and I think that they can be trusted throughout. So thank you very much for listening, and hopefully there'll be uh, time for questions. I'm hoping there'll be a slide change today. Yes, uh, there's our, our website, so you can subscribe to our magazine. And uh, 